You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about precocious puberty. Joining me is Dr. Maria Vogiazzi, an attending physician in the Division of Endocrinology at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Hi, I'm so happy to uh, be here with you today. Thank you. So this is a big topic, um, and to give us some context, let's start with just talking about what the normal age of puberty is for children, and when does it become abnormal? The traditional definition of precocious puberty is um, the age of eight in girls and mm-hmm. the age of nine in boys, mm-hmm. and this is based on the work, the original work of Tanner, and basically it represents an age that is two to two and a half standard deviation lower than the average. Uh, age that the population goes into puberty. Mm-hmm. Now, if we take into account that certain U.S. studies suggest that um, the onset of puberty is actually a year or two years earlier, right. uh, certain in, uh, investigators propose some lower cutoffs. So, certain investigators propose as a cutoff of precocity for uh, white Caucasians girls the age of seven, mm-hmm. and for African American girls the age of six. Wow. However, uh, this is uh, something that remains a, a topic of debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the studies have been uh, having criticized about their methodology, mm-hmm. uh, and also some studies have shown that the age of menarche has not shifted significantly. Mm. So there is still a debate right. as to what's the, the, abnorm, the, the exact definition of precocity. Right. And the most conservative and most acceptable cutoff remains the age of eight mm-hmm. in girls and nine for boys. Okay, good to know. Um, central precocious puberty is caused by early maturation of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis and is characterized by a sequential maturation of puberty. So how often is this pathologic and what are some of the causes of that? So first of all, uh, most of the cases of uh, precocious puberty do not have an underlying pathology, and mm-hmm. we call these cases idiopathic. And actually, uh, central precocious puberty is most frequent in girls. Mm-hmm. And among girls, 80 to 90% of the cases are idiopathic precocious puberty, mm-hmm. meaning there is no underlying pathology. Right. Uh, however, there is a gender difference, and boys do have higher rates of pathology. Mm-hmm. So about, uh, depending on the study you read, about 20 to 60 percent of the boys will have idiopathic central precocious puberty and the rest (coughs) will have some other pathology. So um, what are we worried about? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're worried about 
uh, presence of a CNS tumor, right. especially in a very young child with central precocious puberty. Mm -hmm. In a very young child, the typical tumor that um, uh, we're worried about is hamartoma, which is a benign lesion, mm -hmm. is present typically in the hypothalamus mm -hmm. and is frequently associated with seizures and a very specific type of seizures which is called gelastic seizures. Yeah. Um, but many other uh, CNS tumors may trigger precocious puberty such as astrocytoma and ependymomas. Mm -hmm. And uh, here I want to bring to your attention a condition uh, that is called neurofibromatosis mm -hmm. because we frequently see optic gliomas in children with neurofibromatosis and that um, can be a cause of precocity. So we are extra careful in evaluation of a child with precocious puberty to see if there is any um, uh, any increased Cafe number of caffeolas that will make us uh, reach the, uh, the diagnosis of neurofibromatosis and look for mm -hmm. uh, CNS involvement. Mm -hmm. In addition to uh, beyond CNS tumor, then any kind of CNS process that affects the hypothalamus and the pituitary may trigger precocity, mm -hmm. uh, such as any kind of CNS inflammatory disease, hydrocephalus, irradiation because of history of irradiation because of malignancy, mm -hmm. congenital midline defects, mm -hmm. lesions like this. Another potential cause of uh, precocious puberty is peripheral precocity, so um, exogenous sources of sex steroids. So what are some common etiologies of this that we should be aware about? Oh, this is such an interesting question, <laughs> and it's very uh, relevant at the moment because um, Estrogen and testosterone preparations exist in the form of gel or cream, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, their use has become more popular and widespread um, uh, over time. Mm -hmm. So we have cases where boys develop gynecomastia because uh, they were exposed to estrogen cream that mm -hmm. the caretaker was taking for treatment of postmenopausal symptoms. Right. And uh, we also have... Uh, uh, cases of girls who became virilized because they were exposed to testosterone gel that mm -hmm. uh, uh, someone from the household was using. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, beyond um, the estrogen and testosterone um, preparation, I want also to discuss exposure to lavender oil mm -hmm. because I'm not sure if people are uh, familiar with it. There were some cases of prepubertal gynecomastia mm -hmm. that were shown to happen when these children were exposed to lavender oil. Mm -hmm. The moment the oil exposure was removed, the gynecomastia resolved. Mm -hmm. And there are some additional uh, basic science studies to show that lavender oil has uh, some estrogenic and anti-androgenic effects. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we, uh, we evaluate a child with uh, precocity, we also uh, try to understand if there has been exposure to lavender oil because you can find this in a number of lotions over the counter. Mm -hmm. Is it also tea tree oil? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yeah. And then do we have to worry about things like um, hormones that are used in 
in meats or you know dairy products and do is that a concern or is there not much evidence for that so there has been an epidemic uh, uh, of uh, premature tilarchy in uh, puerto rico and in italy in the 1980s and people postulated that um, these epidemics were linked to contamination of food products, primarily meat and poultry, mm-hmm. by hormones, uh, but nothing was proven. Mm-hmm. Overall, the thought is that the, the chance of a kid developing precocious puberty because of exposures uh, from food and environment, mm-hmm. it is very slim, very low. Mm-hmm. Uh, However, there is a recent work looking at certain environmental chemicals that are called endocrine disruptors, Mm -hmm. uh, and these disruptors, at least in the lab, provide evidence that they may interfere with pubertal development and reproductive reproductive functions. So this is an area of study, but we don't have anything to guide practical mm-hmm. uh, management at this point right. related to this exposure. Yes. Great. So one thing that often distresses parents is premature thalarchy in infants or toddlers. And I know that sometimes this can be normal. So when should we worry that this is pathologic and when can we provide reassurance? So breast development in infants and toddlers is quite common. Um, and the medical term that we use is benign tilarchy. Mm-hmm. And this term basically describes an isolated breast development in a girl that is not followed by progressive development of other sexual characteristics such as pubic hair, growth spurt, or menses. Mm-hmm. So or not, we are not sure about the underlying pathophysiology is considered uh, a benign process. Mm -hmm. However, these girls need to be monitored because breast development can be the first sign of true central precocious puberty Mm -hmm. and a small number of them may switch to uh, central puberty. Mm -hmm. So how do we figure it out? Uh, I think the first uh, thing that a clinician should consider is the physical exam. Mm -hmm. Uh, If there is only breast development, that's reassuring. If there is breast development along, let's say, of pubic hair, then it raises the concern of central precocity. A second very sensitive indicator is the child's growth. Mm -hmm. So if the child has benign tilarchy, the growth rate is stable, mm-hmm. while if the child has true precocious puberty, we will see a rapid growth rate, and that's typical of someone who is advancing into puberty. Mm-hmm. And in cases where we're not sure, we can also get a bone age, mm-hmm. which is an X-ray of the wrist that shows the maturation of the growth plates at the wrist, and is an indicator of exposure to sex steroids. So. Mm-hmm. A child who has um, a benign tilarchy will have a bonus that is more or less close to uh, her chronologic age, right. while a child with precocious puberty may have a bonus that is significantly advanced and that can raise a concern. Is there a minimum age at which we can rely on the bone age x-ray? So, um, young 
children have many centers that in, that have not clearly ossified. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is um, not a very accurate way of assessing the child. So younger than three or younger than four is perhaps uh, difficult to interpret. Yeah. Okay. okay. So I know that when we send patients to endocrine, they get a thorough workup, but what should we start with in primary care? What kind of labs or imaging are kind of a, a good starting place for a primary care pediatrician? I think uh, primary care pediatricians should consider getting a bone age. Mm -hmm. Not everyone needs a bone age if the pediatrician feels that the uh, pubertal changes are part of a normal vein. They don't have to necessarily to go through, a, a, you know, a, a, a thorough workup. But if the pediatrician feels that this is true central precocious puberty, uh, he or she may consider getting a bone age to mm -hmm. guide uh, not only the diagnosis, but also understand about the growth potential mm -hmm. of the child. Mm -hmm. Now, um, there is um, the typical uh, laboratory evaluation that we do mm -hmm. uh, uh, in uh, pediatric endocrinology. Uh, I'm not sure if the pediatrician should embark into this, but I will be happy to, because sometimes uh, the essays are uh, specific and the results may be tricky to interpret, but mm -hmm. I will be happy to give you some guidelines as to our thoughts when we order blood work. So, sure. for example, if we have a girl uh, with isolated breast development mm -hmm. who is growing rapidly and we're worried that she's getting into central puberty, mm -hmm. we will measure LH and FSH because mm -hmm. we try to confirm that she is indeed in central puberty right. and we'll look into establish that her LH is in the pubertal range mm -hmm. and of course along with LH and FSH we can obtain an estradiol level mm -hmm. to see um, uh, to document that estradiol has moved into the pubertal mm -hmm. range. Mm -hmm. Now, if you see in this girl that the serum estradiol concentrations are elevated, mm -hmm. but the LH and FSH is suppressed, that will imply that there is a source of estrogen that is right. independent right. of the gonadal axis. And this is the typical presenta uh, biochemical presentation of a girl with an ovarian cyst. Right. Okay. Now, if you have a case uh, where the child doesn't have signs of central puberty, mm -hmm. so doesn't have breast development in a girl, not testicular enlargement in a boy, but the only thing that you appreciate on the exam is adrenarche, mm -hmm. then our thought is that we have to rule out elevated androgens, mm -hmm. and one of the disorders that we want to rule out is non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Mm -hmm. So the labs we order will not be LH and FSH, right. but it will be 17-hydroxyprogesterone, mm -hmm. testosterone, mm -hmm. uh, yes, DHS. Yes, yeah. So it depends a little bit on what the, the physical exam looks like to tailor our labs so that we're not just sending everything. That's right. Great. Um, so one of the concerns that you just touched on about precocious puberty is the impact on adult height. So how do you predict this, and how do you know whether or not their pubertal development is progressing too rapidly in a way that's going to impact their adult height? So one of the tests that we mentioned before is uh, the bone age mm -hmm. x-ray that looks at the 
a skeletal maturation of the child, mm-hmm. um, which um, can advance rapidly as puberty progresses. Mm-hmm. The way there are many ways of reading this bone age, but mm-hmm. the method that is most common is uh, the method by uh, Grillich and Pyle. And um, based on this Bonnage reading, there are different methods to um, estimate um, adult height. Mm -hmm. And the method that is most commonly used is the method by Bellipinot. Basically, uh, the way it's done, there are certain uh, tables that were established by using normative data from all time. And um, um, these uh, these tables um, include information on the bonnet reading mm-hmm. and the height of the child at the time that the bonnet was uh, uh, done, mm-hmm. and it provides an estimate uh, of the final height or a height prediction. Mm-hmm. Now there are many things that I want to uh, bring to your attention, and there are many limitations in this method. First of all, uh, all these bonnage readings were based on normative data that were obtained from Caucasian Mm -hmm. children, so may not be applicable Mm -hmm. to other ethnicities. For example, African-American children may typically have more advanced bonnage. Mm -hmm. South um, Asian children may typically have a younger bonnage. Second, there is quite a bit of variability in reading from uh, between interpreters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually, ideally, the bonnet should be uh, read by someone who has experience mm-hmm. uh, in uh, reading uh, these x-rays, either a pediatric radiologist right. or uh, a pediatric endocrinologist. So, uh, saying all this, uh, it comes out that there is an error Mm-hmm. When uh, we um, uh, do this bonnage, uh, these height predictions based on on the, on the bonnage, so right. it should be uh, in, so this the results should be interpreted with caution and uh, having in mind all these limitations. Okay. But going back to your question about how you can assess the progression of puberty mm-hmm. using the bonnage. Um, we can definitely monitor bonnage progression longitudinally mm-hmm. as the child progresses through the uh, different stages of puberty. Mm-hmm. And there are some kids who go uh, through puberty in a slow tempo. So the mm-hmm. typical kid, uh, the typical girl will take two and a half years to go from mm-hmm. the beginning of breast development to menarche. And some kids do it in a faster mm-hmm. rate. And typically these kids have a good growth spurt, but um, their bone age may change quite rapidly. Mm-hmm. So the um, uh, so the final height may end up being uh, shorter than initially right. anticipated, right. and sometimes this kids take us. So sometimes we can use this information who were uh, uh, you know debating should someone should go on uh, pubertal suppression or not okay good to know we sometimes see children in primary care who have been started on a GnRH agonist by endocrinology so for us seeing them in primary care what are some side effects that we should know about in terms of maybe other you know risk factors that we should look out for so in general 
um, generally journal logs are well tolerated. I'll start from the good stuff. Okay. Right? Uh, they appear, these medications appear not to have a long-term effect on the gonadal axis. So the moment okay. the uh, therapy stops, the puberty kicks back uh -huh. and there is, doesn't appear to be an effect on menstruation. Mm -hmm. There doesn't appear to have a negative impact on fertility. Mm -hmm. um, people talk about um, a negative effect on bone accrual mm -hmm. and potentially increasing mm -hmm. the risk for osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. And this stems from the fact that during puberty, the child accrues fast bone mass mm -hmm. and stopping puberty interferes with this process. Right. It turns out that most of the studies support that this is a transient phenomenon that happens during uh, pubertal suppression and then most of the bone mass um, the world, comes back. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so it doesn't appear to be um, a major, a major uh, concern. Okay, that's good. Uh, and then um, I will come to um, the uh, component that most of the kids complain when they get the injectable form. So mm -hmm. uh, generate analogs come uh, as an uh, as an injection that mm -hmm. can be given monthly, every three months, and now we have a preparation that is given every six months. Mm -hmm. And they can also come as an implant. Okay. So, uh, so the injections can be quite uncomfortable, uh, mm -hmm. intramuscular, and uh, there may be local pain that lasts for a couple of days sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, very rarely we see abscesses that are actually sterile abscesses okay. and they're considered more of a reaction to the medication it's very rare but mm -hmm. can happen okay. and some of these abscesses may require draining and they are not so easy to heal mm. and one last thing um, uh, all these generation analogs uh, are used beyond uh, sexual precocity for, uh, in men with prostate cancer and mm. it was found that um, they were associated with Q, with a, a prolongation of the QT interval. Mm. So there is no similar report uh, in children, but there is a warning that children who are at risk for having increased QT interval mm -hmm. to have an EKG done before and during therapy. Okay, that's a really good thing to know about. Yeah. So some, something that we get asked a lot in primary care is about whether or not we should worry about body odor in young children if there aren't signs of other puberty. So parents bring this up a lot. Is it, is it something to be concerned about? I think that, yeah, I will pay attention to these children because it can be, body odor can be the first uh, sign of uh, adrenarche mm -hmm. uh, or pubarche. So there are two terms that we use in cases like this, adrenarche and, and uh, pubarche. Mm -hmm. They both imply isolated sexual hair development mm -hmm. Uh, with no signs of central puberty, mm -hmm. in other words, no signs of testicular enlargement in boys, right. no signs of breast development in girls. But 
um, the difference between these two terms has to do with um, serum androgens. Mm-hmm. Puberty, uh, you me- uh, the, me- the serum androgens are in the completely prepubertal age, adrenarche. The uh, serum androgens are slightly elevated, so if you measure uh, uh, DHEs in mm-hmm. a child with adrenarche, very frequently you will see that the value is a little above okay. the prepubertal range that mm-hmm. implies that adrenarche has happened. So adrenarche and pubarche are both benign processes. We are not 100% sure about the etiology. It shouldn't affect the onset of um, uh, central uh, puberty in uh, the child, Mm -hmm. but it's important to monitor and screen this child for other disorders that may cause virilization. Mm -hmm. And one of the disorders that I would like to discuss is non-classical CAH. The reason I want to discuss is because uh, today we have newborn screening that picks up as uh, the kids with CAHs, mm-hmm. with one caveat, the newborn screening was meant to pick up the kids with the severe form of uh, CAHs. Otherwise, the kids who have adrenal insufficiency, right. or the kids who will have ambiguous uh, or atypical genitalia right. in a girl, was not necessarily meant to pick up the kids with the mild form of CAEAs, which is called non-classical. Mm-hmm. So these children, the, uh, still the, they still can mist, and uh, children with uh, who present with body odor mm-hmm. or um, a pubarchy and adrenarchy, they need screening for non-classical CAEAs by measuring 17-hydroxyprogesterone and testosterone. Okay. Is there a certain time of day for these tests, um, you know, are there, are there diurnal patterns, like should we do uh, these screenings in the morning or does it not matter? Oh, it does matter because um, um, all androgens are higher in the morning mm-hmm. and have a diurnal variation very similar to what you see with cortisol. Mm-hmm. So we prefer to screen early in the morning mm-hmm. and a serum 17-hydroxyprogesterone above 200 mm-hmm. is uh, very consistent with uh, the diagnosis of non-class. So when we see these kids in clinic, um, if they're not there in the morning, we should bring them back for morning labs. Ideally. I mean, this is a matter of time. (laughs) Sure. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much um, for talking with us today. This has been really, really interesting, and there's lots more that we could talk about on this topic, um, but we will link to some of the resources that you mentioned on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash pcppodcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.